So when we meet Jesus and we declare that He is the Son of God, immediately you become a son or a daughter. Immediately your identity is given to you. That we are loved and that we are grounded and rooted in His love and we know that we're His kids, then all of a sudden we get to understand what we're made for, what our purpose is, which is where inheritance really begins. Intimacy says God chose you and He loves you. Jesus Christ died for you because God loves you that much that He wants relationship with you. You can't perform it. You can't earn it. You have to receive it. As Ryan said, we're in our series on Hebrews, and if you are new or just joining us, it is way too far along for me to give you a recap. Go online, lwrv.org, and check out the podcasts. Um, but the biggest concept and theme would be that it's all about better covenant people, that we are carriers of his presence. And the entire book of Hebrews is about how Jesus is greater. All right, Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than the sacrificial system, than the temple, than the high priest. Jesus is greater that's the sermon. We can go home early and get coffee. Um, and I've been super excited for Hebrews 9, because I've known for a few weeks that this is what I was teaching on, and I've been like, yes, this is awesome. And then this week came, and like every day I woke up, and I'm like, all right, God, what, what's it going to be on? And there was nothing. And like Thursday, Ryan texted me, and he's like, hey, how are you feeling? And I'm like, honestly, I might be able to talk for 30 minutes about Hebrews 9. We'll see what happens, though. And so I kept thinking, because he's like, oh, I'll pray for you. I'm like, awesome. Ryan's praying for me. Friday, I'm going to get a download of Revelation. And there was nothing. I almost texted, like, Ryan, pray harder. It's not working. So yesterday, I'm like, OK, Saturday, that's a great time to start a message for church. And it was like freaking crickets all day long. And this morning at 3.45, I woke up and I'm laying in bed and I'm like, really, God, do you have any idea when nine o'clock is? <laughs> it's not like he woke me up with a bunch of stuff for this morning, right? I was laying there, like kind of freaking out. Natalie this morning's like, are you okay? And I'm like, I don't know. I might have a nervous <laughs> breakdown. I just say that because first gathering, I think turned out okay. And we just read through the chapter and talked about it. And I did a lot of like prep work and study and prayer. I just felt like God has something very specific for us. And it might be completely different than last gathering. So we will see what happens. And we're going to read Hebrews 9. Actually, I'm going to read it to you. And I would love if you would just listen. Um, because I think so often we get distracted. At least I do. I see the footnotes. Or I'm like, what's that word mean? Or there's a mark in the Bible that I'm borrowing. And I'm like, you are filthy. Wipe that off. <laughs> so you can listen to Hebrews 9. This is the Passion Translation, starting in verse 1. Now, in the first covenant, there were specific rules for worship, including a sanctuary on earth to worship in. When you entered the tabernacle, you would first come into the holy chamber where you would find the lampstand and the bread of his presence on the fellowship table. Then as you pass through the next curtain, you would enter the innermost chamber called the holiest sanctuary of all, or some of you might have heard the Holy of Holies. It contained the golden altar of incense and the Ark of Covenant Mercy, which was a wooden box covered entirely with gold. And Placed inside the Ark of Covenant Mercy was the golden jar with mystery manna inside, Aaron's resurrection rod, which had sprouted, and the stone tablets engraved with the covenant laws. On top of the lid of the Ark were two cherubim, angels of splendor with outstretched wings overshadowing the throne of mercy. But now is not the time to discuss further the significant details of these things. That is my favorite sentence in the Bible. 
you just spent five verses talking about all of this stuff and then you're like, oh, but now is not the time to go into that. Why did you bring it up in the first place? <laughs> right, like, is anybody else listening to this? Like, what does this mean? Be prepared, that's most of the chapter. And if you have questions, email ryan at lwrv.org. <laughs> He would love to answer them because there's whole passages of this that I don't understand. I'm reading like, okay, God, we're just gonna do this. But that sentence is actually significant because we don't just get rid of everything that's previous to that. We just realize the original intended audience for the book of Hebrews was Jewish people, was those who had come out of the Jewish religion, which was very ingrained in sacrifice in the temple or the tabernacle, in these different rooms and constructions and all of these different pieces and artifacts that were made from very precious substances that were beautiful and ornate and engraved. And then the book or the writer of Hebrews is like, but that doesn't matter anymore, so let's move on. And then he does, verse six, or she, it could be a he or she, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, one of the things I love, says, so this with this prescribed pattern of worship, the priest would routinely go in and out of the first chamber to perform their religious duties. And the high priest was permitted to enter into the holiest sanctuary of all only once a year, and he could never enter without first offering sacrificial blood for both his own sins and for the sins of the people. So for those of you who might not be familiar with the Old Covenant or the Old Testament or the book um, from the first five books of the Old Testament, it's really important that we understand what the author is saying because some of us may not know what the Day of Atonement is. But if you've ever looked at your calendar and you've seen the words Yom Kippur, it's the Day of Atonement. It's like the most holy day of the Hebrew calendar. And what would happen is this, and I'm gonna play it out for you. And so I'm gonna use Matt Southmade because I just think you're awesome. So if you can come up here. And Noah, because you smiled when I called on him. So Noah Curtis, you can come up too. I don't know if you see like a theme that's working out here, but God made a few perfect heads, the rest he put hair on. Just saying. So I got, this is like three's company, yeah. I figured you guys would not get too mad, question mark. Noah, you're gonna be God. It's good, when I called, like Chad was God first gathering and he moved away from us and I was kind of thankful because I'm like, wait, you think I'm gonna get struck by lightning? No. You are gonna be God. Now, God can't be in our presence, so you need to leave, and I'm gonna have you go through the doors back there. I know, now I feel bad. You're gonna go through the doors back there, and you're gonna wait. Okay, and we're gonna pretend like the doors back there are the inner part of the temple where only the priests could go. All of you are Israelites. You are not allowed into the inner part of the temple, only the priests are. Beyond the inner part of the temple, or that hallway right there, is a door, and we're gonna say beyond that is the Holy of Holies. So Matt, you're a high priest. <laughs> the high priests would carry out all of the sacrifices for Israel. Not all of them, but this one specifically on the Day of Atonement. He would take two goats. And on one goat, he would place all of the sins of the nation. It's called the scapegoat. If you've ever heard that word and wonder where it came from, this is where it came from. You're welcome, that one's free. Put the sins onto the scapegoat and he would let it into the wilderness because it was a representation that the sins of Israel were no longer in their presence, they were away. And the goat would wander, and in my mind, I'm like, how long do goats live? Because the sins of Israel's could be alive for like 20, 30, 40 years, I don't know. No one answered that after first gathering, but you release one goat with the sins of Israel, the other goat you kill, you take the blood, and you splash it all over the place. We're not familiar with this, right? But the Israelites, the, the Hebrew people, killed a lot of animals. 
Like I've never killed, I mean, I killed a bluebird once. I won't go into that though, but I've never killed anything for, everyone's, oh, I've never killed anything for food, right? I go to the grocery store and I buy bacon. It's in a package. There's no pig looking back at me. I don't slit anything's throat. I don't like peel off the outer layers. I don't, I mean, I butchered a chicken once, but it was already dead, defeathered, and most of the bones and stuff were gone. There were no chicken feet or a beak. Right, the Israelites, though, thousands and thousands and thousands of animals every single year were slaughtered for sacrifice. But on this one day, the Day of Atonement, which is what the author of Hebrews is talking about, our high priest would kill the goats, would repent for the sins of the people, would repent for his own sins, and then he would listen to the Israelites. So what I want you guys to do is collectively out loud, I want you to tell all of your prayer requests, all of your thoughts, all of your questions, all of your repentances to the high priest all at one time. Okay, three, two, one, out loud, go. What would you ask for? What would you want God to know? No notepad. Keep going, because there's only like 100 people in here, and the Israelites were in the millions. And so I want you to think about how big this gets for one person to hear all of the requests of a multitude. And then for one time, on one day a year, the high priest would go into God's presence. Can you go back there? Can you tell God everything that you just heard from us? (laughs) Repent for all of the sins, but mostly mine first. Right, think about what this, and you can bring God back in as well, if you would like. (laughs) The high priest was permitted to enter in the holiest sanctuary of all only once a year, and he could never enter without first offering sacrificial blood for both his own sins and for the sins of the people. For 1,500 years, an entire nation related to God through a mediator. For 1,500 years, we couldn't be in God's presence. If you wanna talk to God, You gotta go once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. You gotta tell all of your problems, all of your issues, all of your repentance to Matt, the high priest. (laughs) He goes in and says everything to God, but you have no idea what's happening back there in the Holy of Holies. Is he alive? Is God mad? Is God accepting these sacrifices? What's going on? And then when the high priest would come back out, guess what you get to do? You get to wait. for an entire year to talk to God again. For 1,500 years, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people observed the Day of Atonement. For 1,500 years, this is the closest they got to God, was separated from his presence, a mediator who would hear the requests, who would make a sacrifice for their sins, who would go into the most holy of holies and then would come back and for another year, there would be silence. Right, imagine that because that's what the author is writing to. And he's writing to these people who are being drawn back into that. But thankfully, the author doesn't end it there. If we pick up in verse eight, it says, now the Holy Spirit uses the symbols of this pattern of worship to reveal that the perfect way of holiness had not yet been unveiled. So that temple system, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the high priest going into the holy of holies one day a year, that was in the past. 
because this current way had not yet been unveiled. For as long as the tabernacle stood, it was an illustration that pointed to our present time of fulfillment, demonstrating the offerings and animal sacrifices had failed to perfectly cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. For this old pattern of worship was a matter of external rules and rituals concerning food and drink and ceremonial washings, which was imposed upon us until the appointed time of heart restoration had arrived. Right, 1,500 years is how long the Israelites carried out the temple sacrifices. And yet for the past 2,000 years, Christians all over the world have tried to wander back into it. Right, and it might not be the, the blood of bulls and goats. Like I said, I've never killed anything. But I am really good at trying to be good and failing and trying and failing. Right, and, I, and there might not be separation now because until the appointed time of heart restoration had arrived, but, but I am good at, at removing myself from God, right? Ryan always talks about 2 Corinthians, the veil has been torn, right? There is no separation. The veil might be torn, but I build walls like a master, right? And I armor myself and protect myself from God. And he may not be hiding from me, but I find that over and over, I hide myself from him. Because I've heard these things, but they still don't quite sink in. See, verse 11 continues, it says, but now the anointed one has become the king priest, this is Jesus, of every wonderful thing that has come, for he serves in a greater, more perfect heavenly tabernacle not made by men. And he has entered once and forever into the holiest sanctuary of all, not with the blood of animal sacrifices, but the sacred blood of his own sacrifice. And he alone has made our salvation secure forever. Right, all, the, all the worship songs that we sang this morning, planned by pure accident, maybe, maybe not, but I had no idea what they were, and then we're singing them, and I'm like, that's Hebrews 9, over and over and over again. Right, because we have to understand that it's not the blood of animals, it's the sacred blood of Jesus, and that he alone has made our salvation secure, but also we have to understand that he did it once and forever, Right, one sacrifice, not yearly. One sacrifice, not many. Right, I remember like eight years ago, we were on vacation and we were driving home from San Diego. And Bella, our oldest, was like two at the time and she was potty training. And when you do a road trip with like a two-year-old, it is hell on earth because I have to go potty. You can't just say, go in your diaper anymore. Like you have to stop. And so I was already gearing up for like a very long 14-hour road trip. And then I think we forgot diapers for one of the other kids. And like, we're in the car. We've been driving for three hours. It's six in the morning. So we got up at three. We drove through LA, which is also hell on earth. And then we get to like, it's true, this Starbucks at the bottom of the grapevine. And we're like, all right, we're just going to go in, get coffee and food, and we'll get back on the road. But Bella, of course, had to go to the bathroom. And so I drove the short stall, and I'm like taking her to go to the bathroom. And I go, and then she goes, and then I'm helping her up, and the keys drop in the toilet and I hadn't flushed it. And there's that moment of like, Bella, you should reach in there and get the keys <laughs> for daddy. <laughs> oh, I didn't even think of that at the time, but that would have been brilliant. Okay. So I put my left hand into the toilet, and as quickly as possible, I pulled the keys out, and then for like 10 minutes, I'm desanitizing and scrubbing. My arm is like pink and then bleeding. There are no germs anywhere, but for the next... 12 hours of the drive, my arm is tingling and itching 
and I just feel like it has like gone on her pacifolates and I need penicillin, something <laughs> to save me. But that arm was clean, right? If not like right away after 10 minutes of scrubbing, it was when I did like the antibiotics and the, the hand wipes and the hand sanitizer and the, the shower that night with like scrubbing with a pumice stone, right? <laughs> How ridiculous would it be if every day for the past eight years I've been scrubbing my arm because I'm still worried about the urine that was on it from a toilet near LA? Right? Once for all, we have been cleaned. And you might think, oh, that's kind of graphic and gross. Well, so is sin. But we can deal with this, right? Because once for all, Jesus made the sacrifice, not you. And I think that's really important for all of us in here to grasp and understand that it's not about anything that you have done. It's about what he did one time for all, forever, right? When we take communion in here, we drink some juice and we eat some bread and the juice symbolizes Jesus's blood, but it is not his blood, right? It's not shed over and over and over and over and over again. That one sacrifice 2000 years ago was good enough for all of our sins. So when we enter this space, we're not separated by a God who has to be in a tent removed from our presence. We come to him. But for all of human history, we're afraid and we hide. And it goes back to the garden, right? Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, they eat the forbidden fruit. They, they sin. And then it says that God is walking in the garden. They heard him and they hid from him. But I think so many of us have been told that God hides from us, that he hides from our sin. And it's completely wrong and garbage because the Bible tells us clearly that he has entered once and forever by his sacred blood, his own sacrifice. He alone has made our salvation secure forever. It's not about what we do, right? It's not about coming on a Sunday morning and hoping our worship is good enough to appease him. It's not about hoping that we can give enough money or finances or tithing or time or energy or striving or serving. It's not about our works or our action at all. It's about his blood. And if we get weirded out by hearing about blood, it's not that weird of a concept. The simplest explanation is that blood equals life. It's not about payment or sacrifice in the terms of like actual blood on us today. It's about that sacrifice. He poured out his life so that we would not die, but we would have life in and through him, right? That is what the Bible is telling us, and it's amazing, but it continues, and I think it gets better. Verse 13 says, under the old covenant, the blood of bulls, goats, and the ashes of a heifer were sprinkled on those who were defiled and effectively cleansed them outwardly from their ceremonial impurities. Yet how much more will the sacred blood of the Messiah thoroughly cleanse our consciences for by the power of the eternal spirit, he has offered himself to God as the perfect sacrifice that now frees us from our dead works to worship and serve the living God. That middle part, verse 14, yesterday when I was still struggling to come up with what are we gonna talk about tomorrow, I was like, oh, I think I'm supposed to ask my wife, Natalie, like, hey, what do you think about the message and what would, you know, what stands out? So we're riding in the car and, and we're going on some errands and she's reading it out loud and she's like, oh, this part about cleansing your consciences, that's really good. And I'm like, yeah, I was gonna talk about that. If you were gonna talk about it though, what would you say? 
And so she starts telling me like all this amazing stuff. And I'm like, I'm never going to remember this. Write it down for me. And so she texted it to me. And I'm like, this is exactly what I would have said if it had been on my own, for sure. (laughs) But the truth is, I read this like every day this week. And I read commentaries on it. And every single time I missed this and the significance of it, when it says that the Messiah has cleansed our consciences, Like so often we have a list, a litany of all the sins, all the wrongs, all the mistakes, all the failures. And God doesn't see any of that. Right? The Bible tells us that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just and he cleanses them. So when I go to God and I say, hey God, I'm sorry for this, the first time that's me actually confessing. But if I keep going back to God, like I do so often with communion, I sit down and I'm like, God, I'm sorry for this, and 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 I've already told him that like a hundred times. Do you know what his response is? It's, what are you talking about? What failure? What sin? What mistake? What list of transgressions? Because he doesn't see my mistakes. He sees the perfection of his son, Jesus, right? Cleansing our conscience is about us. And realizing that no matter what kind of case we've built against ourselves in God's presence, he doesn't see any of it. He sees his children. Right? This week, as I was thinking through this, God brought to mind something that happened nine months ago in our house. I stay home with the kids throughout the day, and they are upstairs playing on this one specific afternoon, and it was too quiet. I'm like, I'll go up there in just a minute, and then I'll check and see what they're doing wrong. But before I could make it up there, I hear like screaming and yelling. And then I hear Callum, who's my five-year-old, going, I didn't mean to, 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 I didn't mean to. And he's like almost hyperventilating because he's so worked up. And so I like run up the stairs and I'm like, what happened in a very calm and orderly voice? I actually was like, what did you do? And I look at the wall and there's an outlet that has a nightlight in it and it's like smoking and sparking and there's stuff happening. And so I go over and kick it and a penny flies off. And he had taken a penny and put it on the wall and dropped it to see if he could land it onto the two prongs. And I'm not like a genius or a rocket scientist, but what happens when you put that is it conducts electricity, it arcs and it blew the circuit. It probably would have started a fire. Now, the thing about that moment is, like, once we got over the shock and the frustration and him being time out and the tears and the crying and then, like, the comedy of the fact that it melted into the penny, the two marks, we have it on Instagram. It's an amazing picture. (laughs) That moment, though, did not ruin my relationship with my son, right? My son doesn't need to come up to me every single day for the next nine months and say, Dad, I'm sorry about ruining the electrical socket. Dad, I'm sorry about almost setting the house on fire. Right? Once it's happened, it's done. Now, the fact is it did take me nine months to replace it because I replaced it just yesterday. But you can see the top part is blackened. Now, you know what I also don't do? Is I don't go up to my, who's six now, my son, and say, I would hug you but this. (laughs) I might keep this for his wedding, like a present to warn his wife, like get fire insurance and get a lot of it. (laughs) But when I look at this, like I don't think of my son's failure, right? And when God looks at you, he doesn't see this. He doesn't see whatever it is that you've done, whatever it is that you've carried into this room. He doesn't see the thoughts that you had a minute ago or last night or last week or the actions. If we repent, he's faithful. 
right? His blood has cleansed us once for all, forever. And that's what we need to realize. We don't work through an intermediary of a high priest anymore. Jesus is greater than the high priest. He is the new high priest who is always in God's presence on our behalf. And when God looks at us, he doesn't see our failures and mistakes. He doesn't see the things that we've blown up or destroyed in our lives. He sees Jesus. He sees perfection. He sees grace. Right, and verse 15 continues, so Jesus is the one who has enacted a new covenant with a new relationship with God so that those who accept the invitation will receive the eternal inheritance he has promised to his heirs. For he died to release us from the guilt of the violations committed under the first covenant. Right, Jesus is the one who enacted a new covenant, a new relationship so that we don't have to worry about failing and striving and working and failing that we look to Jesus and he say, when he said it's finished, like that wasn't a, a preposition, like it's finished until. It's finished if. No, it is finished. Because verse 16, now a person's last will and testament can only take effect after one has been proven to have died. Otherwise, the will cannot be enforced while the person who made it is still alive. So this is why not even the first covenant was inaugurated without the blood of animals. For Moses ratified the covenant after he gave it the people all the commandments of the law. He took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop branch and sprinkled both the people and the book of the covenant saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commands you to keep. And later, Moses also sprinkled the tabernacle with blood and every utensil and item used in the service of worship. Actually, nearly everything under the law has, was purified with blood since forgiveness only comes through an outpouring of blood. See, forgiveness came through Jesus and we don't have to keep working for it. So then verse 23, and so it was necessary for all the earthly symbols of the heavenly realities to be purified with these animal sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves required a superior sacrifice than these. For the Messiah did not enter into the earthly tabernacle made by men, which was but an echo of the true sanctuary, but he entered into heaven itself to appear before the face of God in our place. Under the old system, year after year, the high priest entered the most holy sanctuary with blood that was not his own, but the Messiah did not need to repeatedly offer himself year after year, for that would mean he must suffer repeatedly ever since the fall of the world. But now he has appeared in the fulfillment of the ages to abolish sin once and for all by the sacrifice of himself. Every human being is appointed to die once and then to face God's judgment, but when we die, we will be face to face with Christ the one who experienced death once for all to bear the sins of many. And now to those who eagerly await him, he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to bring us the fullness of salvation. Right, those are beautiful, beautiful words about Jesus and the work that he's done to restore the relationship with the Father that God desired to have all along. But it's not based on your performance, right? We were visiting my brother uh, a few months ago uh, up in Beaverton, and we were playing a board game together, and the kids were all playing with their cousins. They're having a great time. And then Callum, who's my six-year-old, came down, and he's like, Dad, look at this. Dad, look at this. 
And I'm like, oh, that's awesome, bud. And I looked at it and then he ran away. And then like 20 minutes later, he came back and did it again with something else. And I'm like, that's amazing. And I'm just used to it because that's the reality that I live in is my son loves to show me what he's doing and what he's done. But my brother looked at me and he's like, man, do you see how eager he is for your approval and affirmation? And now I was like in tears because all I could think is like, have I done something to make my son afraid of our relationship? Right, to where he has to show me and prove to me that he can work and he can earn and he can strive because that's not the way I want to be as a father. And that's not the way the heavenly father is. Right, Jesus doesn't need us to bring to him all our spiritual coloring books. God, look what I did, look what I did, look what I did. He just wants to spend time with us, directly with us. Like Ryan is great and he's an amazing pastor, but you don't have to have a relationship with God through Ryan, through Kate, through Kim or Drew or Andy or the worship team or a Sunday morning or even the Bible. As good as the Bible is, it is not a replacement for direct relationship with God, which has been his desire from the very beginning, right? This is all about Jesus is the greater high priest, Because for 1,500 years, the Hebrew people would go through an intermediary and they would tell their sins and their struggles and their issues to the high priest and he would go away. And then Jesus came on the scene 2,000 years ago and it was God with us. But the disciples knew eventually that would end because Jesus was crucified and then he rose, but he was only on the earth for 40 days after he rose. And before he ascended, he spoke with his disciples and he breathes on them. It's like the best story in scripture. I'm sorry, he breathed on them? Like, put yourself in that position. Like, the Messiah is breathing on me? Things just got weird. I'm out. Like, been following you for three years, but no more. But in that moment, what Jesus was doing was he was imparting himself on his followers. He was pouring out his life and his spirit. What happens when you breathe air in is that your body takes the different chemicals and pieces and it filters it out into the different organs and parts of your body. It goes into your bloodstream and it becomes a part of you. So when Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to his followers, the disciples and us by extension, it was to prove there's no separation. There's no distance. Jesus went back to heaven. He's uh, he's sitting with the Father right now, face to face on our behalf, but he left us with the comforter, the spirit of truth. He breathed and now we have the holy of holies in us, right? It's not a place. It's not a location. I've been to Israel. I went to Jerusalem, did all the sights and tours. We went to the Wailing Wall, which was the foundation for the Temple Mount. This is like the closest place that Hebrew people believe they can get to God. And I walked up to the Temple Mount and I put my hand on the wall. And do you know what happened? Nothing. Nothing. And I was super disappointed until God is like chuckling. And he's like, David, I'm as close to you in Medford as I am to you in Jerusalem. (laughs) Right, and that is what has happened through the work of Jesus, not through your righteousness, through your effort, through your striving, through your mistakes or failures, or you reminding, but God, remember when. He doesn't need that because he already dealt with it once for all, forever. Would you pray with me? Father God, I pray over us as a people 
that you would help this sink into our brains and our hearts and our lives. God, that we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our consciences have been cleansed, not a temporary cleaning, but they have been purged forever so that we don't have to remind you over and over of our mistakes. We don't have to get stuck in our failures. We don't have to worry about performing and being good enough and showing you our work. We just get to run to you, cling to you as a good father in your presence, in your goodness, in your mercy, in your grace. And we get to do it all because of Jesus who has gone before us. So God, I pray that we would be a people who look forward to Jesus' return, not because we're afraid of judgment, but because we're excited for the fullness of salvation that he brings. God, I pray that we would be a people who don't get stuck on our sin, but who fix our eyes on you and everything you've already done and how it's completed and finished. God, help us to be a people who don't hide from you. Even in the midst of our struggles and our frustration and our temptation, help us to come into your presence with open hearts and minds to lean in to acknowledge that you are the good father and you love us. God, I praise you. In your holy name we pray, amen. Have a great week as uh, you celebrate tomorrow and spend time with family, hopefully in a beautiful weather.